0: Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
3: Part of the roller coaster is that Europe is no longer determining its own fate, but it's actually... the beck and call of the superpowers and many of the most important material advances washed over here from the usa and and at least the usa was a sort of beacon of of advances hadn't been destroyed in the second world war in the way that uh, west european as lots to mention east european countries had
4: that was ian kershaw discussing the history of europe All of this week we're running special editions of the podcast to celebrate our 500th episode where we're interviewing some of our favourite guests who've appeared since we began in 2007. Well, today's episode is in fact number 500 and so we thought it would be a perfect opportunity to speak to the historian who appeared in our very first episode, Professor Ian Kershaw. As the world's best-known biographer of Adolf Hitler, and an acclaimed writer on 20th-century Europe. Ian, of course, needs very little introduction. His latest book, due to be released at the end of August, is Roller Coaster, Europe 1950-2017, which sees Ian explore the very recent past, including events he witnessed himself. And this was the subject of Ian's conversation with our content director, Dave Musgrove, who was also Ian's interviewer back in 2007. Let's
5: hear how they got on. I'm here with Sir Kershaw, one of the leading historians of Hitler and Nazi Germany. Your new book, uh, however, Rollercoaster, Europe 1950-2017, to explores post-war Europe. You actually started your career as a medieval historian, so you enjoy a challenge. Um, Presumably this small leap forward in time from the Second World War to uh, a post-war period was uh, much easier than leaping forward 700 years from the medieval period to the Second World War.
3: Yes, it certainly was, of course, um, and it's the the period of my own lifetime, so um, some of the things were in a broad outline anyway, familiar to me. Uh, on the other hand, I'd never done any primary research on the post-war era, so a lot of it was new to me in any scholarly sense, finding my way around the... Research materials and the literature was uh, posed its own difficulties, but it was nothing like as hard as you said as moving, jumping seven centuries from the, from the thirteenth century into the twentieth century. So that was a long while ago. Though when I did that, so what sort of approach did you have when you when you when
5: you're moving from the a subject which you know extremely well, the Second World War, to one where you're clearly slightly out of your depth, where you're, where the sources are, are unfamiliar to you.
3: The first problem is to think how to compartmentalize this period that you're dealing with so 70 years roughly speaking from 1950 to 2017 67 years you ought to be precise um, compartmentalize it into slots that make some intellectual sense I decided at the early stage to um, continue the approach that I had in the previous book to Helen back 1914 Europe 1914 to 49 which is that I would <clears throat> I would deal with it in a narrative sense, in narrat- chronological chapters, not so much narrative, but chronological chapters, which are then subdivided thematically. I thought that was the only way I could operate then and in the second book of the, of the 20th century history as well. And so um, the first thoughts that I had to develop were, how was I going to Really deal with this seventy years, and what were not just what were the main events in it, but what were the main patterns of development, and how did this seventy years fall into different chronological um, sectors that made some sense? And once I'd done that, in of course the my initial ideas changed a bit as I went along. It's true, but once I'd done that, then I had to start to find out what was the main literature on the first of these sectors and and then go through them. In the first instance, I read quite a number of general books about the 20th century, so I had a sense of a feel for, for it before I began and then worked more intensively on the first of the sectors, which was the Cold War. There's an immense literature, of course, on that, so I then had to find my way through that and decide what was the most important stuff to read on that and gradually then build up a a sense of of where I was going with that uh, chapter until I was in a position to start writing it and and then refine the writing along and then move along until start at the beginning and when you've come to the end, stop.
5: So. In terms of the challenge, um, I'm just reminded of of, of one of the reasons we're doing this is is you were the first interviewee for our our BBC History Magazine podcast back in uh, 2007. And and I listened back to that interview um, yesterday. And when I asked you uh, in that interview to predict future fertile avenues of research for the Second World War, um, you you said you were excited about the possibilities of uh, Russian archives opening up. Now, I don't know how far that's actually happened in the last ten years. Perhaps it's become less easy to get access to to Russian archives now, given the, the, the current geopolitical situation. But is uh, on a broader picture, is it? Are there some parts of Europe, some countries where archival access is is very difficult for historians and where research is, is hard to, hard to carry out?
3: There is no part of Europe, I think I'm right in saying, where. Um archival research, detailed research, is more difficult than it was before 1990, uh, including Russia, uh, the Soviet Union as it used to be. And um, what I said at that time, i completely forgotten, but it's a great honour to do another podcast. <laughs> I mean, done the first one all well, those years ago. But um, what I had, um, I, I don't remember saying that, but it, it's correct that nonetheless that the opening of the Soviet, former Soviet archives did provide... Uh, many opportunities for further research on the Third Reich, and many of these opportunities have been taken, and research has been immensely deepened and extended as a consequence of access to these materials in in Russia, but also in other parts of Eastern Europe. And as regards this sort of book that I'm doing now, of course I have to say, again, as I mentioned in the book itself, this isn't based on my own archival research. I I haven't done any archival research in Lithuania or, or Albania or wherever. Um, I couldn't do that because I don't have the languages, but even if I did, it would be pointless because other people have done that research. So if you're writing this type of panoramic study, what you need to do is to be able to sift through the research, the innumerable um, strands of research which have been pursued by um, vast numbers of scholars, right, from doctoral students up to uh, university professors and so on, uh, and and then be able to sift through that and, and work out from that what is the most essential stuff to to distill into a book of this kind. But the uh, nonetheless, I mean, in this book and also in Hellenbach, what I was really keen to do was to incorporate Central and Eastern Europe into the history of Europe in a wider sense. And the availability of material since 1990 has meant that a lot of work has been done on these areas, which enables a much better understanding of the history of these places, both before and after the fall of communism.
5: Richard Evans, another a very, very highly regarded historian of Europe, um, once said to me that, that he thought the, the lack of languages, uh, language skills amongst British historians, was going to be a major impediment to British historians sort of getting into Europe. How, how difficult was it for you to, to get over the language barrier? I mean, when you assume that Lithuanian historians tend to write in Lithuanian.
3: Yes, but we are fortunate in the sense that um, that important works on Practically every place had been either written in English or translated into English, so there is um, an immense literature available in English on practically every aspect you can uh, think of in related to this period that I'm just dealing with now, and also related to the previous period of 1914 to 49. Um, that being said, of course, uh, foreign languages are invaluable my uh, best foreign language by far is german and because of that i mean i am able to read lots of stuff in german which is not translated and and um read german newspapers and all the rest of it um and that's been very useful other than that i i um i can read perfectly well french and um much more slowly italian um, and I can struggle through, I know, the context bits of one or two other Germanic languages, like uh, Dutch, but but only if I know exactly what's going on. So my own languages are very restricted. That's, that's still quite a few. And I oh, expect right. you can muddle for a medieval Latin as well. Oh, Latin, yeah, I can. No, that, but that, That's not <laughs> a great deal of help in Europe after 1950. But if I'd been working on, on a history of medieval uh, Europe, for example, Latin would have been... Um, as important, if not more important, than an accumulation of numerous foreign languages today because it was used um, not solely Latin, obviously, you know, Arabic was used and, and Greek was used, but Latin would have got you a long way, whereas, of course, even with English and German or something, I mean, you don't penetrate too deeply into, as you were saying, Lithuanian or mm. Czech or Polish History and so on. So, you are dependent there upon works being translated into some language that you're able to cope with, and, and primarily, of course, into English. And we're fortunate there in that so much stuff is.
5: So, beyond the method and, and, the, and the challenges
3: of actually doing a work like this, and this is
5: a it's a big book. There's a, there's a lot of material in there, and you've had to look at a lot of sources. Clearly, um, what, how would you distil the aim of the work? What were you trying to achieve with this book?
3: Well, in an obvious sense, the the broad aim is is to um, help an understanding of where we've come to in the last seventy years, where we are now. One of the main purposes of history is is to see where we've come from. It can't do much about predicting where we're going to, but where we've come from. And in dealing with the period of the since the end of the Second World War, it's dealing with a, a, an obviously very not just critical period, but a period which which directly affects the world that we live in today. So to that extent, my overriding aim was to understand better myself and to make this understanding more widely available of how we've got where we've got over the last 70 years. Um, in a more detailed sense, of course, I needed to uh, understand the this tr- this period of development, and I then... Um, wanted to show it not as just a linear, linear progression was, but rather the the ambivalent um, character of this development. So many things are, are better than they were in 1950, let's say material terms obviously. Um, but obviously but at the same time many things are are less good and and so I wanted to convey this as a a, a period of, two eras of insecurity, the insecurity at the beginning that was felt because of the obvious threat of a nuclear war. Uh, And I think in Europe, that threat largely subsided after the Cuban crisis in 1962. So my first chapter on the Cold War really comes to an end. I ended it more less, with Churchill's funeral in 1965, which is the end of of that period. Um, But but we're now in a, another era of insecurity of a different kind with lots of material insecure, lots of people now who have insecure jobs, which compared with, let's say, 1960s and 70s, 50s and 60s and 70s perhaps, they were then much more secure. So um, two eras of insecurity and, and how we've gone from one to the other, and I see much of a, a, a shift in that in, in, the, in the 1970s and early 80s, and that's, that chapter on that is a sort of pivotal chapter in the book, I suppose. So I mentioned earlier that most of your research has been on the Second World War up up till now.
5: How much of Europe's history has been about getting over the Second World War?
3: Well, a large part of it. um, And we are in many ways still, uh, I was just struggling for the right word to to, put it, I was about to say obsessed, but we're not obsessed on it. But we are nonetheless concerned all the time to interpret and uh, the Second World War and the Holocaust, which was a, a critical element of that Second World War, to see that as the uh, perhaps the most pivotal um, era of the entire 20th century. And oddly, the farther we've got away from it, the more in which the, this seems to preoccupy us. So when you look back at the 1950s and 1960s, the Second World War was very present in obvious senses, which it isn't so present now. But at the same time, there wasn't a vast amount of uh, detailed research that was carried out on it. Official histories, yes, and so on, but um, not a vast amount done. In universities, it was hardly taught at that stage. And the Holocaust really didn't become a major feature of historical writing and interpretation until much later, really, say, almost the 1980s. So the farther we've gone away, the more it's come into the sharp focus as to the, the centrality of the um, of the importance of, of what of what transpired then in those six years. So what we've seen in this show, I have a chapter in the book, for example, deals with culture after the catastrophe, I call it, and where you see there, too, how cultural developments of a whole variety of ways are then directed by the experiences of the Second World War. And, and yes, at the same time, you have people who are wanting to escape from that and move forward, young people naturally and, and primarily who then want to look to the future. And so again, you've got an ambivalence. of so on the one hand, people looking back or trying to escape from it but not being able to do it. and on the other hand, people wanted to shut out the past and to move forwards, and that's ambivalence has remained right through. I think now. So on the one hand, we, you see, in in, in Germany too, that uh, on the one hand the the the, the, the Nazi era is omnipresent. So hardly a week goes by without some newspaper article on it or some new book coming out which causes a stir or something in the mass media. On the other hand, there are plenty of people. Uh, not just young people say, well, it's time to draw a line on that and, and move on. And it, it all happened and it was terrible, but now let's move on. So this ambivalence continues, I think. And um, and uh, we we see that in, in so many avenues in this country. You look at bookshelves in, in in any major bookshop and you see the shelves bulging with stuff on the Second World War. You see how omnipresent it is in our own minds even now. Do you think, uh, I mean, you, you
5: talked a bit about the German view of the of the war. Do you think... There isn't a particular British fascination with the war though I mean, people do tend to say that you know it's the British who are obsessed with it and, and we're the we the nation who hasn't really sort of got over it and come to terms with it whereas other nations, particularly germany but because of 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 their of their of their part in it, have had to really come to terms with it is there
3: is there any truth in that yes, I think there is i, I, I mean they, there is a very contrasting approach to the war as you might expect uh, between germany and and the United kingdom, and there the war is is seen as very important, especially, um, I think, by um, generalising widely, but by well-educated people and by people um, who think a lot about um, about the past and so on. But there it, it's in terms of what terrible things happened here and the, something like the Remembrance Sunday that we have every year and which is such a moving occasion here doesn't happen in that way in Germany because the, the Second World War was... Was a period which you can't remember in any type of positive way, in the way that mm. that we do. And for British people, I think the Second World War is is a period of great, often of great, seen as a period of great pride uh, in what we did then. And since then, British history has not been exactly a, a long history of, of triumphs and glory. So there's a way in which we project back onto that period our own. Um, desires for a, for a, a community which work together and where we we all um, we see a national unity then which isn't so omnipresent today and so on and so we have a very different approach to that and we still have all these war films is the books on militaria which sell so well here they don't sell at all in Germany people aren't interested really in military history very very much in the way that we are we are here and um, they uh, the Episodes, which of course are crucial to us in the Second World War, such as the Battle of Britain, or the or Dunkirk, um, or uh, the or D-Day, and so on. They, of course, they're not um, forgotten or underwritten in German history, but they're not central episodes, of course. And um, they concentrate much more on the disasters of the end of the war, the uh, the. Um, which was, of course, an absolute calamity for the entire country and so on. But it's a calamity that was self-made. So they um, they have, in order to understand understand that, they have to understand really why people supported Nazism and what Nazism meant. And the more in which more research has developed in Germany over the last. Um, uh, 40 years or so, the more you've seen elements of everyday complicity in Nazism come into the fore. So this society can't quite rid itself of the fact that it wasn't just a, a, a conspiracy from Ohio, a few Nazis and people would bamboozle into it, but people actually did collaborate in this in, in, in massive fashion. So that's
5: that's been a fascinating debate in sort of understanding history. But in terms of um getting back to um actually recovering from the war in the in the in the fifties, you you have quite a, a lengthy section in the book about the, the economic miracle of, yeah. of the nineteen fifties, which is clearly important. Briefly, how did that come about and how evenly was it was it spread around Europe?
3: Well, there was immense global growth after the Second World War. This was to a large extent produced by the war itself. Um let's take one obvious example, but the the war um, uh, necessitated uh, the the production of materials for uh, military uses usages, and after the war, these were then often converted into civilian usages. So there was an element there which was potential for growth. There was a huge, massive army of people who needed to be employed, were looking for employment after the Second World War. This reservoir of of, um, of workers then fed into um, the rebuilding of German cities, for example, and so on, and were taken up then increasingly into German industry. But it wasn't confined to Germany. This was global growth, and you're talking about very high levels of growth, uh, you know, so 5%, 6 8% and so on, sometimes more, often from a very low base, obviously. But this growth then um, in, in Europe was, was uh, a major motor then of the, of the post-war development and also helped... To establish democracy, liberal democracies in Western Europe, because democracy could be seen to be successful, as it was primarily, you see, in Germany, but also in in other countries, and uh, everywhere, therefore, uh, the, the 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 high levels of growth were critical in sustaining the path to liberal democracy in Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, it was a different matter, but there too, there was very uh, very high levels of economic growth, which were then put to different purposes, military purposes, primarily and um, so less for civilian use, but even there, civilians were better off um in in terms of their material welfare than they had been in the interwar period
5: was it at all inevitable there would have been this this massive growth after the war then you know it had it could only go one way or was were there specific policies that that made it a particularly strong economic period
3: well the largely it was it it was a product of the forces unleashed by the war and So there was going to be economic growth as soon as things settled down. But there were, of course, policies. Those adapted adapted at uh, the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, and then later on with the beginnings of of, uh, integrated trade policy and so on, which then meant that there was a conscious attempt made, which hadn't been done after the First World War, to restart the international economy. And in good measure, that was successful. It was, uh, in particular, an American um, uh, initiative, but we were the second string in that at the Bretton Woods Conference. So the USA and the United Kingdom were the two countries that took the lead in that. And that helped to uh, get things moving. Of course, in Europe too, the Marshall Plan played its own part in this, uh, an American policy to help uh, refire the European economy. Uh, The Marshall Plan wasn't the... The only thing that mattered there, or even the most important thing that mattered, but it was nonetheless psychologically, it was of vital importance in that it gave a purpose now to what was happening there. And within a few years, the uh, the economies, in particular of the defeated country of Germany, Italy, Austria, were the three countries that were particularly um, strong in their growth, but other countries too. And um, they growth-fed growth, and then off you went through the 1950s and 1960s, this growth at a very high level. And in the meanwhile, um, again, uh, larger supported by the United States, which decided in contrast to 1918, it decided now that it's going to stay in Europe, and it helped signally to develop, not just the economic um, forces, but also politically to help to stabilise Western Europe. You can criticise the USA for many things, but Without the USA, it might have been a different picture. So, the involvement of, of America was very important too in this in this period. And the peer was very successful uh, in Western Europe generally. Some countries more than others, and we in Britain tend to lag behind in terms of growth and also in terms of investment, which helped to produce sustain the growth. Uh, but in in Western Europe generally, uh, there was there was very high a very high level of growth, and the. The French refer to this as the 30 glorious years uh, between 1945 and 75. Some of the years weren't that glorious in political terms, but the French are talking there about uh, economic development, which was largely one of, of real advancements of strength. And this, the strengthening economies enable then the states in Western Europe to spend relatively large amounts of money... And welfare. So the welfare states then flourished in all these countries in that period because there was no question of them penny pinching or whatever, but the money could be obviously these were in embryonic compared to what they are now, the welfare states, but nonetheless money could be put in that direction and these could uh, develop at the same time that there's money available for other things too. So it's generally seen as Macmillan put it in this country, you never had it so good and so on, but that was a A Sort of, not everybody had it so good, but it was a general
1: feeling about about that period that these were, as I call it in the book, good times. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
2: Leaping around a little
5: bit, and you did mention uh, Churchill's funeral earlier, um, there, there was a, a particular quote from the book that you wrote about that. Uh, so the funeral was in January 1965, and you said it was symbolic of the passing of a generation wedded to the certainties of the nation state, imperial domination, and European great power politics, which is a, there's a lot in there. Um, but I wonder if perhaps you could expand just a little bit on some of those things. So as we're drawing to the end of that period of, of the good times, there's there's lots of factors coming into play there, aren't there?
3: Yes, well, Churchill's funeral. I just used symbolically there, nineteen sixty-five, January nineteen sixty-five, and uh, if you look at the the film of that, then you see all these old stages are still around from the from the War like De Gaulle was was there and everything, and um, and it was a passing of an era in a way. And Churchill was a, an imperialist, of course. Um, De Gaulle also, though he. he By then, of course, he had accepted the fact that Algeria would be independent, but in essence, he had grown up with a French empire. And um, the anti-colonial movements, which had um, really taken off uh, during the Second World War and then expanded afterwards and grown in strength and, and in dynamism, they had resulted by the 1960s in the end of Empire—the end of these colonial empires, apart from the odd little bits here and there—but in essence, the colonial empires of, of uh, the Dutch, the Portu- Portuguese lingered on to the seventies. as a sort of slight anomaly. The British one, and the French one, the two major ones had effectively ended by the by the uh, late nineteen sixties. And um, so, the in imperial terms, uh, the Second World War is a caesura. You see it actually as the beginning the beginning of the end of colonialism. These good times were predicated, as I said, on on economic growth, and and by the mid nineteen sixties, you've already seen the first flutters of um, problems in the offing, so to say. But they were still contained until the uh, the oil crash, the first oil crash of nineteen seventy three, when the oil prices uh, rocketed up and everywhere was put under severe pressure by that. And then the second oil um, crisis in nineteen seventy nine, the following the Iranian revolution, and. Um, these put the uh, economies of the whole of Western Europe and also Eastern Europe to some extent, also indirectly. But talking about Western Europe now, really, but they put the economies in a under great pressure, pressure which they'd not been under subsequently. So once more, you see that the 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 Churchill funeral here is is like the end of a immediate post-war period of rapid. Uh, economic growth. It's starting already to uh, to slow down then. And by the early 1970s, already before the, the crash, the oil crash, it had slowed down considerably. And then the oil crash comes and effectively ends that period of these 30 glorious years, as the French would call them. So um, the, the 1970s are uh, are pivotal in economic terms. And also by the late 60s, you're having then challenges coming east and west. Which I deal with on the, the the student protests of 1968, then, are reflect now a challenge to the sorts of um, views which had uh, been carried over through the Second World War and from uh, the generation which had come to maturity during the war, and was being challenged by younger people. And many of these the values there were were now uh, being. Compelled to be rethought, and and over a period of time they were rethought. And in at the same time in uh, Czechoslovakia, the challenge to the um, to the Soviet Union's uh, domination, already had that those challenges in East Germany and Hungary and Poland in the nineteen fifties, and then in the 1968 you have the the most overt challenge then. Since, since Budapest in the Prague Spring. So there again, a challenge to the old system. The, the Soviets are able to overcome that by military might. In the West, the, the, um, the challenges helped to really undermine, gradually to undermine the dominant uh, value systems that had existed uh, in, the, in the early uh, post-war period, which were then, as I said, themselves a remnants of the pre-war and wartime period.
5: So um, you've sort of talked a little bit about some of the uh, Cold War aspects of, of the story, and we can't really cover no, no. Uh, European history without, without mentioning it. So I've, I've just got one question to ask about that, because there's so much to talk about it, but it looms large over Europe. There has been talk recently of, of there being a new Cold War, like a, a resurgence of the Cold War. I wonder what your view is on whether actually has the Cold War really always been part of Europe's story, this this. Divide between the, the, the East and West is that just is that basically just a continuing theme that we should we should take note of for the whole period.
3: No, I, I, I think we should see the Cold War um, as contained chronologically by the the first um, four post-war decades, basically from when it set in in 1947 until its ending with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, and that was the period of the actual Cold War. What we have now of course, various levels of antagonism between Russia, the main um, country which has developed out of the Soviet Union, the biggest of the Soviet Union's countries. We have uh, these continuing antagonisms on various fronts between Russia and uh, the West, uh, not just the USA, but also other parts of Western Europe, including, of course, in the East Britain. But I think to, it's a good journalistic phrase to call it the Second Cold War, but it isn't really. I mean, there isn't an ideology there that now that's competing with the Western ideology in any obvious sense in the way that the Soviet ideology posed a complete alternative to the Western view of the world. And that led to very heated confrontations at certain times, most particularly as regards Europe in the, in the 1950s and the, over Berlin, which largely subsided with the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961. And it reached its culmination as regards the threat to the West in 1962 with the Cuba crisis. After that, the threat really, as a, although there was always a danger of a nuclear um, war, of course, and the real threat then subsided massively. It, uh, it increased again in the 1980s with the uh, stationing of Pershing uh, rockets then and the conflict over that, uh, the, the Russians, um, uh, Soviets then stationing their SS-20 uh, rockets in Eastern Europe and the Western retaliation with Pershings and, and cruise missiles. And so there was, a, again, a period of, of notable tension about 1980, 82 to 84 or something like that. Then once more that subsided. And, um, but the end of the Cold War brought then the end of this ideological conflict. And this ideological conflict washed way beyond Europe uh, into all sorts of countries which were attracted by the Soviet alternative. Uh, And what we've now got is actually just a, a type of great power conflict between the USA and Russia over various interests, not least in the Middle East and so on, which are, they have their dangers. Of course they do. And they are worrying at times, and it will be much better if we had better relations between the West and Russia. Uh, but those poor relations now are very different from the poor relations that existed in the at the height of the Cold War.
5: So, just going back to the um, to the start of that president, so the, the the ideological battle, as you said, was 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 important. How far did that did were people aware of this of this? blooming ideological battle uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. You know, Churchill making his famous Iron Curtain speech. How far did that disseminate into the into the wider populace, do you think? Did people, were people aware that there, there was a new thing going on, you know, the war age but then it was suddenly like there was a a, a new a new problem? Uh,
3: they very soon were. Um, maybe not in the immediate aftermath, where um, obviously Soviet, you know, being our allies during the war and there were these type of... Um, Uh, very um, trivialising notions of Uncle Joe Stalin and things like this. But Mm. rapidly, as the Cold War descended, as it did from 1947 onwards, um, there was a wider sense that this was now a real threat. And numerous things then made made people aware of that, not least then the Korean War when it started in 1950. And one of the things I I quote the... um, in, in the book, in places from the the diaries of this woman who lived in Barrow-in-Furness, Nella Lust, and they're quite. In, I mean, it's only one person writing about this, but her diaries are interesting because she's a middle class, lower middle class person living in in Barrow, working class town, um, but she's writing in her diaries about now the threat from from Russia. From the Soviet Union and about Stalin as being worse than Hitler and so on and so forth. So there was a way in which this was um, through news, popular press, and obviously then through the way in which this is manipulated in in all sorts of ways through propaganda of one kind or another. That the that the Soviet Union now, from having been our ally in the Second War, is now a real threat. So I think there was a wide, fairly wide sense that that was the case. Obviously, there were people on the left in every country who looked to the Soviet Union as a positive development and um, wanted the Soviet Union to succeed and welcome what was happening there. Uh, But nonetheless, that also demonstrates the way in which these values, this counter-ideology that the Soviet Union represented, had filtered down to a wide section of the population.
5: Moving on again, there's a a very nice quote in the book that you've got from uh, 1969 where you talk about uh, an Italian peasant who expresses his joy at having an inside toilet and the the way that humanises his life and stops him from thinking like an animal, which is uh, quite an astonishing thing to think of in in 1969. And then that's juxtaposed quite soon after with you commenting on the fact that the the Apollo landings happened that year as well. Um, So there's a, a chap who's just got a toilet in Italy and... There's um, a rocket landing on the moon in the same year. That just brings home to me the fact that there's clearly these wide discrepancies in the way that technological developments and, and social and cultural developments are are advancing in in you know what what is also known as the swinging '60s, I suppose, probably not in in rural Italy. But so how how do how do you sort of square all those different things going on there?
3: Well, I talked at the beginning about the the ambivalence of development and the fact that people things are moving at different paces all the time. I, mean, I call the book Roller Coaster because I wanted to convey this sense of unpredictable shifts maybe on ups and downs and not, not just being one of continuous success story or anything else. The Italian um, uh, peasant, as far as I remember, wasn't just that he, he, he didn't have an inside toilet, but he had to go into the field, I think, yes. before he didn't even have yeah. a toilet at yeah. all. I mean, I, it, when I was at... Um, uh, a student at um, in in the at Oxford in the um, later 1960s I got married at that time. We lived in a little cottage in Woodstock, and we had an outside toilet then so we didn 't have inside toilets so, um, houses were getting inside toilets then in this country were getting inside toilets in in, in during the 1960s so there were there was beginnings of material real material advancement then of um, Uh, people getting cars as well and the general things that we associate with modern life were then beginning to become available in a much bigger fashion in the 1960s but of course there were areas of still of incredible poverty in particular in eastern central and eastern europe but also in western europe in, in in people who went to spain at the same time wrote about much the same thing so and even within Italy, then between the relative swish parts of Milan, for example, and uh, the the backwaters of, of parts of the Mezzogiorno in southern Italy, were enormous. And so the, the gulf between the gulf in wealth and income was there at that time too. But um, as numerous people have demonstrated, the the period uh, of the Second World War and the period immediately afterwards, the period uh, looking across the 20th century as a whole, where the income divisions were actually Probably smaller than they than they have subsequently become, um, and uh, you have these colossal developments in uh, technology, which are then allowing the landing, the moon landing. You know something which uh, only in nineteen fifty would have been barely imaginable. That we're going to put a man on the moon within twenty years? No, no chance. And yet it happened. And um, again, you see here the importance of the USA in this story. So. Part of the roller coaster is that Europe is no longer determining its own fate, but is actually at the beck and call of the superpowers. And uh, in the case of America, then many of the most material, the important material advances washed over here from the USA, and, and at least the USA was a sort of beacon of, of advances, hadn't been destroyed in the Second World War in the way that uh, West European, as not mention East European countries had. And uh, so I'd and, and, and come out of it as a thriving superpower. So a lot of these advances then come, wash over from uh, the Atlantic, from the USA. And uh, within those 20 or 30 glorious years you've got then enormous advances in terms of the number of people who have cars or telephones or televisions or whatever. Everything, fridges as well, or vacuum cleaners, all the sorts of things that we understand, we just take for granted. But they weren't taken for granted in the 1950s. (laughs) People didn't have all these things then. You, You were lucky if you had a telephone or a fridge or a television. Uh, whatever you know, so it, the big changes came about at precisely at that time in domestic things as well as in putting the man on the moon.
5: Again, uh, like the Cold War, we can't uh, do this interview without talking about European Union and, and and that project. So, just just to ask you to to give a view, what's your take on the success or otherwise of the European Union project?
3: I think the European Union has been a massive success. I mean, obviously there are. Uh, Flaws and failings in the so-called project, but I mean, any reasonable assessment would say you look back at the position in 1950 and compare it with with the position in, um, I say 2000 or just before. Right? So, so they just stop this the the clock just before the the crisis years from 2008 onwards. I think you'd have to say it was a, a huge success, and um, the. Not just the levels of, of of trade and integrated trade which it has produced, but also, not least, the sense that it has made it helped to make war between European states unthinkable. There were wars in Europe, of course, in the 1990s, the Yugoslavian wars. Um, all the more reason then for the European Union to want to integrate countries into this uh, burgeoning economic zone that produced the welfare that had helped to consolidate democracies. So to extend this then to Eastern Europe after the um, the breakup of the Soviet Union and so on. And uh, in general terms, the incorporation of these countries has been successful. So it's not just the European Union on its own, obviously, but the European Union, any fair-minded person I think would say the European Union has contributed substantially to that, to the making the prospect of war uh, between European countries then uh, far uh, less likely, not to say almost unthinkable now, and uh, to helping to provide the levels of prosperity that we've enjoyed increasingly in the last 60, 70 years. So there have been uh, mistakes made in the Union, and arguably the introduction of the euro uh, without a central European uh, government was one of those mistakes uh, that was that was actually uh, one or two people presciently said at the time that it's a fair-weather project, it will uh, hit the buffers at some point. And it nearly did in 2000. the years after 2008. It survived, but it's still not, as most people would say, not a altogether satisfactory economic model, putting it mildly. So... Um, the uh, european union too has been checkered pluses and minuses but on balance i'd say it's been uh, the the pluses greatly um outweigh the minuses how far do you think
5: it's uh, a a project or a plan that's been following a vision as set out in the early years of of the um uh, of, of the way it was set up has it always been like you know this is where it's going people who've been behind it been been pushing it in a certain direction or has it just been it's moved on from this to this and this and, and it, with, with it, real politics.
3: There was an element of vision involved in it right at the beginning uh, with the Schumann Plan and Monet right in the beginning of the 1950s. Uh, and this vision was largely meaning that uh, Europe would would come together and prevent then the type of internecine war in uh, which had, which had uh, almost destroyed Europe in uh, twice over. So there was a vision there preventing war and preventing war through, through um, increased uh, prosperity, uh, which would come about through grosser integration. Um, but larger speak, and, and at certain points, this vision has, has been more prominently expressed than at other times, such as in the time of the late 1980s with Jacques Delors, uh, which brought, the of course, the vehement response from Mrs. Thatcher in this country. Uh, but largely, the European Union has become the European Economic Community as it was, uh, the Common Market initially. Um, largely, it's responded to developments as they've come along. There's been an overriding sense of what we want to do, but the main thrust has always been how you respond to developments which you couldn't easily foresee. Not least of all, of course, then the end of communism and a completely new scenario. After 1990, what do you do then about these new countries? Do you incorporate them? Do you not? So, all along, there have been very practical questions which have really shaped the development of the the so called project rather than just carrying on uh, in a tunnel uh, vision uh, towards some end goal. And this end goal itself has been greatly disputed and Whatever it means has meant different things to different people at different times. So I think it's best not to concentrate on this sort of a real top end vision of where the European Union is going. And and as for the sense that people say, you know, it's heading towards a a federal, the United States of Europe, federal government or something. I think that's actually not easy to foresee because uh, the, the most important and the most powerful country in the European Union is Germany. And the German constitution itself allows the delegation of aspects of sovereignty. It doesn't allow the delegation of sovereignty itself. So it would run foul of the German constitution. So I think it can't happen. That's, you know, But it's the bogey that's been put forward all the time that this is what we're what we're heading to is the United States of Europe. The term itself, of course, was used by Churchill in 1946 already. What we want to United States of Europe, we won't belong to it. I mean, was his notion, but there will be one. But what he was thinking of, as the goal was later on, was a, a United States of nation states, really, not of an integrated federal, uh, with a federal government at all. And as I said, I don't think that is practical in any obvious sense and for all that so Germany in particular has spoken of um, the need for um, political um, unity in um, political union. It never defines it so political union can't really come about in the sense that most people who want to put What the a bogeyman theory about the European Union see it as.
5: One of the other really interesting themes in your book which uh, I must admit I didn't really think about at all um, Was was the role of religion in the development in the story of Europe which I guess you know it's somewhat overlooked. I think in our, in this in our secular age these days, about how much religion plays into the story. And you have some good examples about you know the, the Pope's visit to Poland and, and what that did in in terms of that country's um, development. Um, how important has religion been in Europe's post-war story?
3: You mentioned that we live in a more secular age, and that points to the fact that religion, in terms of the Christian religion, has played a declining role. In um, European societies and politics since the um, Second World War. At certain points and for certain reasons, it's obviously played a vitally important role, and you put your finger on one of these, which is the the role of the Catholic Church in Poland, where the Catholic Church became increasingly seen as the, the, the main ideological opposition to communism and representing, in many ways, the Polish nation. And when the Pope visited, uh, Polish Pope, of course, uh, John Paul II, when he visited uh, Poland in 1979, it was a sensation. And I have a picture in the book of the vast crowds there in also which which uh, at, at his visit, that's an incredible thing. Although, of course, there even when the Pope came to Manchester at some time and there were large crowds in Heaton Park in Manchester, but mm. anyway, vast crowds there. But there it meant it was of political importance because that demonstrated the levels of support for the church, which meant, in effect, therefore, then... Polish nationality representing Polish nationality against the the communist system, uh, and which was already starting to totter there in Poland. And uh, there were, uh, of course, there you had then not not long afterwards then the welling up of opposition, uh, working class opposition, which then led to the in 1981 to the imposition of martial law. So uh, the religion there played a, an important part in a way that it didn't part play in much of Western Europe, where its its influence and its importance as Decline, so you can demonstrate that with figures and so on. But we only have to look around the number of closed churches or churches now without, without vicars or rectors or priests and so on. Uh, it's obvious that it, it has played a declining role. On the other hand, um, other aspects of religion have come increasingly to the fore. So, Islam is now hardly figured at all in 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 Western Europe at any rate in 1950, but today, of course, is very important. So it's not just religion has died out, but the role of the established religion through churches is far less significant than uh, than it was before. And in the preceding volume, Helen, I mean, I have a section on the churches there in the interwar period and in the war itself, where you see how important they were in many ways, and that importance has largely receded now.
5: Drawing to a close a little bit now, um, do you feel? in any way, having having conducted this study, this survey of, of post-war Europe. And I guess I'm wondering about your experience previously as a medieval historian as well, here, whether you feel that events move more quickly now, whether the pace of change is faster now than it was uh, before the war or earlier even than that. Do you, do, you, do you get a sense that things are quickening or is that just... The, the the view of anyone at any time thinking the world's going
3: too fast? No, I I don't think it is the view of anybody at any time. I think you're a medieval peasant. You had no sense of things changing very rapidly. The seasons came and the seasons went, and one year was much like the next, and life went on, and people, largely speaking, were were not thinking too far into... They weren't thinking about changing the society. What could they do to change? It, it was mm-hmm. actually the sense of time that we have didn't really exist, I think, in the 14th century. Um, Before the Second World War, well, again, uh, obviously, each of the wars, each of the world wars brought massive change as an acceleration of change. And yet, your Italian peasant that you mentioned earlier on would have seen many things that were familiar from um, the period between the wars or even before the First World War. So time hadn't moved on all that rapidly, whereas I think now things are moving. It's not just a sense that we have. Things are moving much more rapidly. One of the reasons for that is actually the, the, the technological revolution or the revolution in communications. And as I said, I think this book deals with a threefold revolution, if you want to put it that way. One, the economic transformation of the 1970s. Secondly, the major political transformation of 1989 to 91. And thirdly, then, the communications revolution that that's taking place with the spread of the internet in the 1990s. And that means now that things are done faster. I mean, just uh, one obvious example is now the way in which it's you move money around the world uh, in this global economy. Now, you can transfer billions of pounds with a you know, click of a button on a computer. And so that means in itself that, that things are moving more rapidly. So it's a sensation we have, but it's also, I think, an accurate sensation of time and, and um, of change being far more rapid than it was.
5: And, and building on that, just in terms of your personal experience of writing this book um, and studying this period through which, you know, as you said, some of these events you've lived through, or at least you're alive when the events happened, um, and you have some some nice little interjections from 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 your personal experience. You have got a, a very good one about when you got a television set, and, and it wasn't for the coronation; it was for for the FA Cup final, which which is which is a, a lovely little interjection.
3: But, what a game it was, too. I remember. <laughs> um,
5: but I mean, how how does that uh, inform the way you go about? carrying out this sort of study in terms of, you know, you, you were aware of stuff that's happened. Um, does it make you feel like a, like a medieval monastic chronicler, for instance, you know, re, you know, reporting on events that you've seen in your lifetime? What does what, what the fact that you've been alive do to the study? Um,
3: it makes me aware in a general sense of how things have changed and how things were changing. It didn't really inform my writing of this book too much, um, I separated off, I think there are about four or five possible personal anecdotes, which I put at footnotes, because what I didn't want to do was to write this as my version of what was happening, which I saw in my own eyes, yeah. which would have been a very limited uh, opening onto the history of Europe since 1950. Uh, because obviously, uh, however well informed you are, and for long periods I was very ill-informed, but however well informed you are, You can't possibly know all that's going on. So, I mean, I did attempt to write this book, as I've written every other book, as a historian dealing with materials that that I have to sift through and decide what is relevant, what is not relevant, what is actually... Um, important, what is less significant, and so on, and dealing with that objectively as objectively as I can do in assessing the evidence without my personal views playing a part. So where my personal views came into it, I've separated them off with these little anecdotes and said, "Well, my recollection of that was this." I'm not saying that was everybody's recollection in, by uh, by any means, but sometimes it it just helped me to think back to what I. Imagine, I thought, because memory is such a fickle thing, sometimes you think you remember something, but maybe that wasn't quite as it was. Uh, But um, in general terms, I've approached this as a work of historical scholarship in the way that I've approached every other book, whether on medieval history or on Nazi Germany or now on on 20th-century Europe. And um, the fact that I've lived through that makes it, for me personally, very interesting to do this. And... I feel at the end of having written this book that I have learnt an immense amount about the period of my own lifetime, and I'm glad I've done it for that reason. If the book didn't sell a single copy, I'd be glad to have done it for that reason, that I think I know more than I did about the history of my own times.
5: I imagine it will sell more than a single copy. You, so, but you weren't drawing on personal diaries or anything like that. You haven't, no, you haven't kept a, no, a record of no. uh, of your life in Europe and absolutely like that. not.
3: No, no, nothing at all of that sort. No, no, no. I um, do, I do have about a thousand football programs down there, which might have helped if I'd done it in a particular way. Well, it?
5: that's an interesting point. One of the things that I was wondering is, is what would you have liked to have got in that you that you didn't include in there? So, you, you allude a little bit to football and the story of football, for instance, but it's not, um for me, that would be quite a, a, a big element of the cultural development of Europe and, and you haven't had space to devote too much to it. I don't think, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think you mentioned the Eurovision project, which uh, is, is quite an interesting cultural phenomenon. There must be loads of things that you thought, I just can't fit this in. What, what would you have wanted to get in if you'd have had another 50 pages?
3: Oh, the glories of Oldham Rugby rugby League football club, <laughs> I think, <laughs> in the 1950s. Um, but no, I, I, it, it's as you say, it, it's so difficult because you have to select all the time things, and there are millions of things that don't appear in this book which somebody or other will say, well, I remember that was important. Why is that not in it? Is that not in it? Mm. You can't do that because it's not a compendium. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a chronological... A day-by-day account of any sort. It is actually a history, a, the way that other histories are written, like the history of the fifteenth century, where you have to there's far there are far fewer materials for the fifteenth century, but still there are enough. So you have to select from those what you think is relevant to the history of Europe in the fifteenth century. And I've approached this in exactly the same way. So um, I I have put in there what seems to me to be the important strands in this and there's nothing really that I think that, I mean, you could of course say as you just have done, European Song Contest and uh, um, or the development of football and all these are vignettes that would cast some light on it. The question is then how important they are uh, in the overall uh, story that you're telling or uh, the the process you're analysing and I have other things in there which I think uh, give the same intonation as these developments you just mentioned there. So it's not that I feel now that I've, I've left out something that I passionately wanted to put in. It's actually that I'm well aware of the fact that you can't possibly cram everything in. I mean, that's like a what is a history of uh, history of everyday life? Is so sort of the, the the sort of total history? There is no such thing because uh, you know, I can't give a total history of my own life yesterday. So everything is actually bound to be selective. And it's just the question of one person's selection will be somewhat different from another, and one person's emphases will be somewhat different from another person's. These are my emphases. This is my slant on the 20th century, and the person will write it in a different way. And maybe, you know, European Song Vision, uh, Some Contest <laughs> will, get, will get its uh, <laughs> due part in it, that.
5: It's probably not a major oversight. <laughs> um, uh, okay, last question. So um, uh, at the end of the book, you you do a thing which historians generally don't like to do so much, which is a little bit of... Uh, forward-looking, a little bit of uh, of pining about the future. So briefly, are you hopeful or fearful for the future of Europe uh, uh, post, post-NEC?
3: I am, I suppose, by, by instinct or by character, an optimist. So um, I tend to think that things will work out, but there are plenty of things at the present time that, that give you, you grounds for pessimism, I think. Well, I think Europe has never been in a a worse place, uh, since the um, beginning of the 1950s. I say that even with some hesitation because, of course, we then had the nuclear threat in the 1950s that was much more serious than it is now. And yet, um, when we look round at, at the, uh, the, not the immediate events so much as the events that might um, shape the world in the next um, half a century, then... There are grounds for foreboding if we don't get it right. And is Europe in a good place to deal with this? Well, Europe's role in, in global history is, is now diminishing to some extent. Uh, it doesn't dominate trade as it once did and so on. Um, we can see that. We can see the rise of China. We can see the, the role of other parts of the world which are now um, shaping Europe's destiny. And we can see that Europe itself is not in wonderful shape, you know, with the internal pressures within the European Union, with the European Union exposed to its own dangers uh, of a sort, which was never experienced before now, threats in Central and Eastern Europe with Hungary and Poland now directly confronting the values, the Western values, which have existed since the, um, for decades now. You see in the West that we are on the verge of leaving the European Union, in a founding country like Italy, is now uh, really causing major problems. And we have then wider issues, which I touch upon in that last, in that concluding section. So, the migration issue, which is not going to go away and which is causing such ructions throughout Europe. Uh, we have the questions of whether Europe can reform itself, which is an open question itself. Uh, is it capable of doing that, um, of reforming it needs to do? whether um, we are capable as societies of coping with, um, for example, with the the demands of aging populations everywhere, which are causing immense pressures, imposing immense pressures upon the uh, welfare state. And not least, of course, we have the the factor of global warming, which in this lovely summer seems great. You know, we can put up a bit more global warming perhaps, but when you look at it properly, Of course, that's a threat hanging over all of us. It's not for Europe to dictate this, of course, but it can play its part in this. And um, my own uh, line on this, I suppose, is that it is better in this world of increasing threats and problems and global threats and a a President Trump who is unpredictable and driving a coach and horses through our Western system that's existed since the Second World War. Um, it, It is... More um, imperative that we stick together rather than see areas of division, and that makes me instinctively, I suppose, a European rather than a Brexiteer. That was
4: Professor Ian Kershaw. Rollercoaster Europe 1950 to 2017 will be published by Annan Lane on the 30th of August. And look out for an article by Ian in our October issue, which is on sale in early September. Meanwhile, Ian will be one of the speakers at our York History Weekend, taking place this October. You can find out more about that and our companion event in Winchester by visiting historyweekend.com. And don't forget, if you'd like to hear previous episodes of the History Extra podcast, then you can, of course, do so at historyextra.com. And that is about all for today. But do listen in again tomorrow when you'll be hearing from another of our podcast stars from the past 11 years.
0: Plus it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.